0: chapter number 13 and verses 20 and 21. This is what many have called the benediction or the closing prayer or desire of the author of Hebrews for the believers to whom he's writing. Notice verse 20, now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep. Through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect. Understand, that's the verb of those two verses. We could say it this way. Now the God of peace make you perfect. In every good work to do His will. Working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight. And then a powerful statement, three words, through Jesus Christ. To whom be glory forever and ever, and say it with me, amen. I'd like to preach a message entitled this morning, The God of Peace. Let's pray. Father, help us as we look into your word today. We're thankful for the power of these two verses. And Lord, I know that we'll just barely uh, touch the tip of the iceberg. But I ask you that you would use these uh, two uh, rich, and power-packed verses to encourage our hearts this day. And uh, to turn our eyes toward Christ. And I pray these things in His precious name, amen. I was uh, encouraged in the end of our Sunday school class today, Uh, Brother Bernie was leading us in a word study in uh, the New Testament on the various words, 19 different words in the New Testament that uh, give the idea or are translated to see, to look, to behold, to perceive, to gaze and so on. And uh, anyway, it was uh, fascinating when he came to the Hebrews 12 passage where the author of Hebrews says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And uh, really, then you move down another verse, consider him, you think about Hebrews chapter two and verse number nine, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. And it's a recurring theme in the book of Hebrews. Consider him, but we see Jesus. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And looking unto Jesus, and over and over that recurring theme. But there in Hebrews chapter number 12, verse number 2, the word that is translated looking unto Jesus Contained in the word means, carries with it the idea of looking away from everything else and looking solely unto Jesus. Looking away from everything else. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The theme of the book of Hebrews, as we'll mention here in just a moment, is that Jesus is better. When I think of difficulties and tribulations that are common to everybody's life and understand there's a sense, too, in which problems and difficulties can be relative, I may go through problems that you'll never go through. You'll go through problems that I may never go through. And sometimes, depending on a person's resources and background, even how they Uh, handle or cope with problems may be different from one person to the next, but troubles are common to everyone. Jesus said, in the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And that's why we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. When I think of difficulties and tribulations in life, I'm reminded of two humorous anecdotes Uh, Years ago we were babysitting the children of a family in the church and this would have been in the early days of the life of the church and we were still living in the big house on the hill and we're having family devotions with these two or three little kids from the other family with us with our own children and uh, when I was finished with family devotions the little boy and he would have been about four at the time he came up to me and he was having some sinus drainage issue. And he came up to me, and as a four-year-old who hasn't gotten the R in their vocabulary yet, would say, how many of you have ever had a little one? They, it takes them a little bit to find the R in their vocabulary. But he came up to me, and he said, Pastor Dietwick, I have issues. <laughs> and he was talking about his sinus struggle. He was having issues. But how many of you have issues? Okay. And then I'm reminded of an older pastor, a mentor of mine from years past, who one of his daughters who's now married and has her own children, but when she was a little girl, she was trying to describe to her daddy, as every daddy of daughters knows in this room, one of the most helpless feelings you'll ever have is a crying daughter. Amen, Ryan? Okay. And then you say, what's wrong? And they look at you and say, I don't know. And that's okay. That's okay. That's the way God's wired them. Okay. But this little girl came to her daddy, and she said, Daddy, I have troubles. She got problems and troubles all mixed up, and she had some troubles. Anybody in this room had troubles before? Had issues? One of the purposes of the book of Hebrews is that the author, under inspiration, is addressing Hebrew believers, that is, Jewish ethnicity, but people who had trusted Christ as their Messiah. He's addressing some difficulties and struggles that they're facing. They're in a hostile world, and in many cases, they are experiencing hostility from their unsaved Jewish family members. The author of Hebrews does say that though they have struggled and have been persecuted, none of them have yet resisted unto blood. No blood had been shed yet, but as you understand the historical context and what first century Jews who trusted Christ as Savior experienced, it's no question in our minds that bloodshed was coming. And history records that it did. The problem is is that some of these Jewish believers who had trusted Christ as Savior were thinking about going back to the external practices of Old Testament Judaism so that they could avoid the persecution. Kind of go underground as a Christian. But over and over and over, the author of Hebrews, under inspiration by God, sets forth the unquestionable fact... There's nothing to go back to. Jesus is better. Over and over, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Look to him. Look away from everything else and look to Jesus. The book of Hebrews is a wonderful balance of warnings about going back, warnings about forsaking your profession of faith in Christ, Warnings about turning away along with greater encouragements. And this is just a practical lesson for us as parents. And I think we touched on this several weeks ago. Dads, moms, grandpas and grandmas, if the majority of the admonition that you give to your children and grandchildren is warning and don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, without the balance of encouragement, you're going to create issues. And I have a new batch you didn't have to have. But the author of Hebrews gives warnings, but he does so with this balance of greater encouragement. And he does this all the way through the book of Hebrews, even to the very benediction, as it's called. The closing prayer or longing or wish that the author expresses for these recipients of this letter. I think it's humorous. In verse number 22, the author says at the end of 13 chapters... 303 verses, 6,897 words, I beseech you, brethren, suffer or allow the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in a few words. 6,897 of them. By the way, if you sit down and read the book of Hebrews, all 13 chapters from beginning to end, it'll take you about an hour if you're an average reader. But his desire is to encourage them, to challenge them. And in this closing prayer, this wish that he gives to them, I want you to understand this morning that everything that the author of Hebrews under inspiration, can I say this, speaking for God, longs for these people to whom he's writing He wishes it for them. That's the tense of the verb or the idea of the verb. He's hoping for this. He's longing for this. He's praying for this. But I want you to understand something. It's not a wish or a hope or a longing like we know of in the world. He is longing for something, praying for something that is an absolute certainty for those who trust God. The things that he speaks of, the things that he mentions, not only what he has done for the believer through Christ, but once he, what he wants to do in the believer for the cause of Christ. And so these things being said, I want here, here's, the, here's the point this morning. When you're going through difficulty, not if you're going through, but when you're going through difficulty, as the author of Hebrews concludes this book, there are four truths about our God that if we'll keep them in mind, they'll help us through our difficulties. We can pray this for others. Who we know are going through difficulties. And when we are going through our own, if we remember these four truths, it will help us. The first is this we have a God who is the God of peace. He's the God who gives, as Isaiah said in Isaiah 26, perfect peace. Literally, peace, peace. Not counterfeit forms, not shallow forms, but perfect peace. Peace, peace. Wholeness, completeness, all the pieces there, everything fitting. He is called the God of peace. And the author of Hebrews, to these believers going through difficulty, says, now the God of peace make you perfect. He doesn't just wish for the peace of God for them, but he tells them that the God of peace is with them. He assures them of the presence of the Lord even as they go through their difficulties. Now notice this, the God of peace. We often talk about the peace of God. Philippians chapter 4, the peace of God, which does what? Passes all understanding. In other words, there are many times you and I are going to go through situations in life where there's not understanding. It doesn't make sense. And in our finite minds, we may grasp for an explanation But God and his sovereignty and his goodness for one reason or another is not going to give it to us. I think one reason is he wants us to trust him. But here's the thing. Even if we don't understand, we can still have his peace. The peace of God which passeth understanding. This peace where everything is right. I may not understand, but I know God's got this. Okay. Nothing is bigger than he is. This is not out of his control. As I've said before, there's never a time that God looked over the banister of heaven and said, Well, I'll be. I didn't see that coming. And we can rest in that when we're in our difficulties. Our God is a God of peace. Why is he a God of peace? Well, first of all, that's his state of existence. He doesn't just give us his peace, he gives us his own presence, the assurance of his presence as the God of peace. It's his state. Uh, One man that I read in preparation for the message this morning spoke of divine tranquility. The world can be falling apart, but everything's all right in the Father's house. There's never been a time when there was disturbance in the throne room of heaven. When the problems of earth shook the foundations of the throne room of heaven. So our God exists in a state of peace, divine tranquility. When the author of Hebrews speaks of God as the God of peace, it's speaking of God being the source of peace. Not only is it his state that he is in divine tranquility because of his control and because of his knowledge, his omniscience, and his power, but he also is the source of peace, the origin of peace. Also, he is the God of peace and the source of peace because of his sovereign control. I preached several messages maybe eight to ten months ago on the sovereignty of God. And we're reminded of the fact that God being sovereign, I'm not scared of that term. God being sovereign means this. He is in complete control all the time. And yet we have human responsibility and free will. And here's the wonderful thing, that even when man makes a choice that is contrary to God's will, it does not mess up or thwart or threaten the sovereignty of our God. The psalmist in Psalm 76 and verse number 10 said, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, and the remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. In other words, even the wrath of man against God, in some way or another, God is going to ultimately work it to his glory and our good. And if it's any expression of wrath that will not fit into God's plan, God stops it cold in its tracks. I was reminded this week, uh, someone reminded me of something I've said several times and the, how it was an encouragement to him. That is this, as nothing gets to you and me, but that it first doesn't cross God's desk and he stamps it approved when it comes to his perfect plan for us. And we can rest in that. His state as God, his existence is divine tranquility. He is the source of peace that he extends to you and me. It's because of his being all-powerful, his sovereignty But the word peace also carries with it the idea of a dispute, get this, that has been settled. You understand that you and I were born enemies of God. Born in enmity, children of wrath because of our sin nature. And then as Grace and I are about to learn all over again in just a few days, that sin nature, Psalm 58 and verse number 3, begins to manifest itself almost as soon as that baby is born. David said, behold, I was shapen in iniquity and, and incended my mother conceived me. And somebody might say, well, that's not fair that we're paying the price for Adam and Eve's sin. We can't go back and change what Adam and Eve did, but praise God for the remedy of Jesus Christ so I don't have to suffer the consequences of what Adam and Eve did. What's the point when we talk about our God being a God of peace and how this will bring us help in our own difficulties? We realize that part of the peace that we have as a believer, as a child of God, those of us who know Christ as Savior and a peace that if you're here today and you don't know Christ as Savior, a peace that you can have, a peace that has been purchased and is available to you if you'll receive it by faith. And it's the peace that was purchased at the cross of Jesus Christ man in enmity against God and unable to get to God but God in love and in grace sent Jesus Christ as the ultimate peacemaker to pay the price for our sin on the cross so that God's wrath against sin could be satisfied so that through the work of Christ on the cross and our trusting him as savior reconciliation could take place the bible says peter says in 1 peter chapter number 1 that the unjust were by the work of Jesus Christ, the just one, brought to God. Reconciled. Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 2, Jesus Christ made peace through the blood of his cross. The peace that was necessary for me to be restored to God, brought into a right relationship with God. And get this, if God can provide peace... In the worst of all situations, the just condemnation of God against man's sin, if God can reconcile that, he can take care of any other trouble, difficulty, or troublem that you and I have. Mark chapter 4 and verse number 39. Jesus stands on the bow of a storm-tossed ship. And he says what three words? Say it again. Peace, be still. You know what that word peace means? It's not the normal word for peace that we see in the New Testament. The word peace that Jesus uses there literally means this. Shush. You ever had a parent say that to you? Shush. Shush. Jesus, as the incarnate creator, stood on the bow of a storm-tossed ship and said to that raging storm on the Sea of Galilee, shush, and guess what? It shushed. Let me just say this. He can say shush to the storms of your life and mine, and they shush. In our difficulties, remember the truth that he's the God of peace. Number two, in our difficulties, remember the truth that he is the God who has all power. Notice verse number 20 again. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Verse number 21. That same God that brought again from the Lord Jesus make you perfect. Two great works (laughs) that are described that God in His omnipotence can accomplish or has accomplished. First of all, he brought Jesus alive out of the grave. And he can make you perfect. That's a big one. Two, amazingly, from a human perspective, impossible works to bring life out of death and to make perfection out of fallenness. And I want you to remember this, in your difficulties and troubles, fix your mind on the fact that you have a God who is a God who has all power. We see this as the author of Hebrews describes in the resurrection and the exaltation of Jesus. Keep your hand here and look with me if you would at Ephesians, two brief passages in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 18, the middle of the verse, just a little bit back to the left in your New Testament. There are some things that the Apostle Paul wanted the believers, the members of the church at Ephesus to remember, to know. Notice the middle of verse number 18. One of the things that he wants them to know is that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, things that God has reserved and stored up for those who are his children. Verse number 19, here's another thing Paul wants believers to keep in mind, to remember, and I want you to know, understood, what is the exceeding greatness of his what? To who? Usward. To usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he did what? When he raised him from the dead and set him down at his own right hand in heavenly places. And then look at Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 20 and 21. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him, talking about the, the Spirit of God, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end, and all God's people said, amen. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, the point the Apostle Paul is making is that God is this exceeding great power that he is exercising towards those you and me who believe, those who've trusted Christ as Savior, he's exercising, he's manifesting that power for our benefit so that we can have victory in this life, so that we can be secured as children of God. And get this, it is the exact same power, Paul said, that was exercised when he raised Jesus from the dead. The same power. That God manifested when he raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that is at our disposal, if you would, to live victoriously for Christ. It's the same power that secures you and me as children of God, so that our salvation can never be lost. And he's able, as Paul would then go on to say in Ephesians 3:20 and 21, to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ever ask or think. Have you ever had that happen before? I praise God for answered prayer. But there have been times I confess to you, I haven't prayed, but I've thought something and God's done it. Now, I'm not talking about this weird charismatic thought stuff, but I'm just saying we have a father who delights to meet the needs and the desires of his children. And he knows what we have need of before we even ask him, Jesus said in the book of Matthew. He's the God who has all power the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power that exalted him to the Father's right hand, the power in verse number 21 to make you perfect in every good work. Now, let me just tell you this. It doesn't mean sinlessness in this life. And we've talked about this before. You and I will never be sinless in this life. There's a day coming, whether through death or the rapture, we're going to be glorified and hallelujah, we will be sinless. On the other side. But I will say this. That's not an excuse for us to keep on sinning. I believe a growing child of God. They'll not be sinless. But they should sin less. Okay. But this God of ours. And the encouragement that this can be to us. In the midst of our difficulties. Is that he's a God that is in the process of making us perfect. Remaking us. Equipping us as believers. And we'll talk about this word. Uh, that uh, is used here, the the verbal idea, verse number 21, make you perfect in just a few moments, what that means. But it's amazing to me as I've studied, meditated on this passage that uh, the, the grace of our God in the work, His omnipotent work in our lives, both in raising Jesus from the dead and His resurrection counting for mine, because He's alive, I shall live also. The victory that is now available to me through His resurrection power But even when it comes to my working for him now as a believer, Philippians 2, 12 and 13 makes this point. We'll not look there. But basically, God puts within me a desire to serve him and please him. He puts it within me. He gives me the power I need to serve him in a way that pleases him. And then get this, he rewards me when I serve him faithfully. Do you see why when we get to heaven, none of us are going to get any praise? (laughs) He is going to get all the glory. Because he's the one alone that deserves it. And so in time of difficulty, remember, your God is the God who gives perfect peace. Your God is the God of peace. He is the God who has all power. Thirdly, he is the God that gives perfect provision. He is the God that gives perfect provision to great Provisions of God in this passage. Notice verse number 20 again. Now, the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. And would you say the next statement with me? That great shepherd of the sheep. Through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Two great provisions of God here that we see that will give us comfort and strength in our time of difficulty The first is he's given us a shepherd, the care of a shepherd, and secondly, he has given us a covenant which secures us. The care of a shepherd, I love and have been encouraged this week to read about the Lord Jesus Christ, John chapter number 10, he is the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do? Jesus said in John 10, he gives his life for the sheep. The passage before us, the author of Hebrews refers to Jesus as the great shepherd. And he is the one who, after having as the good shepherd died for the sheep, given his life for the sheep, the great shepherd is the one who now raised and sitting at the right hand of the Father, helps to equip the sheep for living in this world. But then Peter, in 1 Peter chapter number 5, instructed pastors in particular, and believers in general, that there's a day coming when the chief shepherd is going to appear. And when he comes, he is bringing his reward with him. He's going to have a reward for those who have faithfully served him. Get it? He is the good shepherd. He is the great shepherd. He is the chief shepherd who is coming for his sheep. And to say it with David the psalmist in Psalm 23, that good shepherd, that great shepherd, that chief shepherd is also my shepherd. What perfect provision has been given to us. Anytime you need to be humbled and encouraged at the same time, just think about the fact that if you've trusted Christ as Savior, you're a sheep. There's tremendous comfort in that. There's also a humbling aspect too. Because sheep, from a human perspective, aren't all that awesome. His name was Dr. Bob Smith. He was a philosopher in residence at Bethel College in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm not sure if he's still there or not. But he was a believer, and he said this. He said, the existence of sheep, sheep on the earth is one of the greatest proofs that evolution cannot be true. Because there is no way in the whole thinking of survival of the fittest that a sheep, above any other animal, can survive and evolve to greater heights on its own. Sheep to survive must have a shepherd. And God's given us one. In the midst of your difficulties, remember, that your God is a God of perfect provision. You have a shepherd and the care of a shepherd. He gave his life for you, believer. He's the great shepherd and now has equipped you to finish your race. He is the chief shepherd that is coming again, and he is your shepherd. But we also see in this passage another provision of God in the midst of our difficulties is this covenant of security Notice what the author says that that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of his everlasting covenant, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, the, the, the grammatical thought is this, satisfied God so that God raised him from the dead as a testimony to everybody that he had accepted Christ's payment. Get this, Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. As a testimony for us to hear, that the work of redemption was accomplished through the shedding of his blood. His blood was shed to pay your sin debt and mine. And as a testimony for all that stood at the foot of his cross and for all who would see it in Scripture for the rest of time and history, Jesus said, it is finished. But someone said years ago that when on resurrection morning, God opened the tomb and Jesus stepped out alive, it was the Father saying, it is finished. He had accepted the payment of the son with the shedding of his blood out of death to pay for your sin and mine, raised him to eternal life as a testimony for all time and eternity that God the Father, that he had accepted the payment of Jesus for our sins. And so doing in Old Testament covenants, in any covenant really many times blood would be shed and the point is this, is that under the Old Testament covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the blood of bulls and goats and lambs which could never take away sin was shed repeatedly day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out, but every year on the Day of Atonement they had to sacrifice more and more showing that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin and that incomplete sacrificial system of the Old Testament was pointing us forward to the permanent work of Christ where he as the Lamb of God would shed his blood on the old rugged cross and by himself he would offer one sacrifice, for sins, forever and then sit down at the right hand of God as a testimony that the covenant has been sealed, the covenant for man's salvation. And it's an eternal covenant the scripture tells us here. And the point is this, the work of Christ through the shedding of His blood was perfect and accepted by God to such a degree that it never has to be offered again. Ever. In our eternal security, the fact that once I trusted Christ as Savior, I am saved forever, it's all wrapped up in the work of Christ on the cross. And God has provided this for us. Uh, Keep your hand here and just briefly go back to chapter number 6 in the book of Hebrews. I'm not going to go into great explanation on this, but I want you to get the gist of these words. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse number 17. Wherein God, that is in this oath or this covenant that he is making through salvation, through the work of Christ... Not the old covenant of Moses where sacrifices had to be made over and over again, but this new covenant through Christ. Notice verse number 17, wherein God, in that covenant, God willingly, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel. Immutability meaning something that can't change. His counsel can't change. He confirmed it by an oath or by a promise that by two immutable things, again, things that cannot change. Number one, in which it was impossible for God to what? Why? Paul would say in Titus chapter number one that we have the hope of eternal life, that God that cannot lie promised that eternal life before the world began. He cannot lie. Why? In his promise the point is this that we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hope or lay hold on the hope set before us which hope we have as an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast which entereth into that within the veil whither the forerunner is for us entered even Jesus. This is why it's important for us to keep our eyes on Jesus. The point that the author is making here is this, is that part of the security of our salvation is this, is that Christ, once he had accomplished the work of salvation on the cross, raised from the dead, ascended back to the right hand of the Father, he is within the veil in heaven. And the point is this, is that because I'm in him and because I've trusted in what he's done, as sure as Jesus is in heaven right now, so I will be in heaven too. The only way for me to ever lose my salvation is to snatch Christ out of heaven. Try that one. Jesus shed his blood to pay for our sin and to seal the covenant of our eternal security. There's no need for it to be redone over and over. And an empty tomb is there to prove it. And what wonderful provision in the midst of whatever difficulty you're in. Get it? Your sin problem and the consequence of your sin being death, the last enemy, the worst enemy. The fact that Jesus has already taken care of that means that any problem, this side of your sin and this side of eternal condemnation and death, since he's taken care of that, any problem, this side of it is no problem for Jesus. He's the God who gives perfect provision. We have a caring shepherd and a covenant of security. In closing, I want to mention a fourth truth about God that we do well to remember in the midst of our difficulty. And that is this. Not only do we have a God who's the God of peace, we have a God who is the God of all power. We have a God who gives perfect provision. But I want you to notice fourthly and finally Another truth that will sustain us in the midst of our difficulties is this. We have a God who is working and will accomplish his master plan. Verse number 20, now the God of peace. And then pick up with the verb in verse number 21. Make you perfect in every good work to do his will. Working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We have a God who works a master plan. There are three prepositions of in or in prepositions in this verse. Notice if you would, we have a God who is working in us every good work. We have a God that is working in us. And we have a God that is working so that we can be well pleasing in his sight. There are two different ways this passage can be understood, and I believe both are encouraging. The first is the understanding that God is the one doing his powerful work through me when it is a good work, but also this, that God is doing good in me so that I can work good for him. He's working every good work in me. He is working in you. Let me tell you this, the work that God is doing in you is actually greater than the work he wants you doing for him. And he's doing all of this for the sake of our being well-pleasing in his sight. Being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. And so God is at work in us. I want you to notice this as well. Those first three words of verse number 21, uh, the God of peace make you perfect. The word here does not mean sinlessness. And it does not when the author of Hebrews says longing for God or praying for God to make you and me perfect. He's not talking even about maturity or bringing us to completion. This verb idea here, the God of peace make you perfect, is the same word And this encourages me. It's the same word that is used in Matthew chapter number 4 when Jesus called his disciples. And when he came to them, they were working in Zebedee's boat. And do you remember what they were doing? When he came to them and called them, they were doing something with their nets. Do you remember what it was? They were mending their nets. Where there were broken places, they were reattaching and mending the nets. So that they could be used again. This is the same word. That is used in Galatians chapter 6. and verse number 1. Where Paul said. Brethren if a man be overtaken in a fault. Ye which are spiritual. Restore. Restore such in one. In the spirit of meekness. And so it's the idea of mending nets. It's the idea of restoring what has been broken, resetting a bone. I won't take the time to turn there, but in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and verse number 10, this word is used also to speak of how God multiplies or supplies what is lacking. And then ultimately, this work of perfection that God is doing is also working to make us pleasing in His sight. By the way, positionally, Ephesians 1 tells us that you and I are already accepted in the Beloved. When God looks at me, He does not see my righteousness, which is His filthy rags. He sees the perfect righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ, and He says, you are accepted. Practically as I labor, my goal is to, with the power of the Spirit and the work of God in me, to regularly be coming up to the position that God has already permanently given to me. Okay. And by the way, when you have a right perspective about my being accepted, already pleasing in the sight of God, accepted in Him, when I have a right perspective about it, it motivates me to want to make sure that everything about my life pleases Jesus, even in my practical daily living. But it's a comfort to me and a comfort to you in the midst of trials and difficulties, just as it was for these believers 2,000 years ago, that my God is not only a God of peace, He's not only a God that gives perfect provision, He's not only a God who has all power, but He is a God that is working out His master plan in me, and He will accomplish and finish what He has begun. So that he'll take the trials and the difficulties. And he'll take the brokenness. And he'll take the hurt. And he'll take all of those things. And he will mend. So that we can be restored to usefulness. He will make up for where we so desperately lack. And so you can see how these believers in the midst of their difficulty... And the struggles they were having would have been strengthened by these words. An illustration and a poem, and I close. Notice, if you would, verse number 21. The God of peace make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well pleasing in his sight. Would you please say the next three words with me? Through Jesus Christ. It's not you. It's not me. It's Jesus. Imagine with me, and this is going to take a lot of imagination, but imagine with me that I was a master carpenter. I'm not. That's why it takes imagination. Right now, in the back of Judson's pickup, he has all of my tools and all of his combined for the construction that he's working If I were Master Carpenter, I could say to Judson, Judson, you got the tools of the master. You got all those tools. Take them. Use them. Use them. Wear them out. Whatever you want to do with them. And he is wearing some of them out. I push the little reader button on how much battery life is left. And I'm like, man, he's going through some batteries. And those batteries for those DeWalt tools are not cheap. But I could say to Judson, if I were a Master Carpenter, Judson, take my tools. Use them all you want. But if, if I were a master carpenter, you tell me in your own mind and heart the difference between sending my tools along with him and saying, son, I'm going to work with you today. You, son, I'm going to go and, and whatever joints or obstacles you run into, whatever corners you need to make when you're trimming out a house, whatever dilemma you run into today, my tools are there. That is good. But it's not the same as the master carpenter saying, I'm going with you. I want you to understand something. In the midst of your difficulties and your trials, you have the great shepherd with you. So that anything that you experience, anything you go through, it's a part of God's plan. Get this. And you can face it through Jesus Christ. I was reminded of a song. I believe the man's name was Joel Hemphill, several years ago. Most of the time, we put it in the category of kids' songs. I'm going to try and sing it. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be because he's still working on me. There really ought to be a sign upon my heart. Don't judge him yet. There's an unfinished part. But I'll be perfect just according to his plan. Fashioned by the master's loving hand. Sing the chorus if you know it. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be, because he's still working on me. Verse 2. In the mirror of his word, reflections that I see, Makes me wonder why he never gave up on me. But he loves me as I am, and he helps me when I pray. Remember, he's the potter, I'm the clay.
1: He's still working on me
0: to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be. He's still working on me. If you're here today and you've never entered into the covenant of salvation with Christ, let me just tell you. He's already done all the work. You just have to buy faith, accept the work that he's done on your behalf. If you're here today and you don't have the assurance of salvation, please don't leave. We're going to sing a closing hymn in just a moment. Judson, go ahead and come and get ready if we can have the piano player too. If you're here today and you don't know Christ to save, you're not sure about your eternal salvation, where you'll spend eternity. Before you leave today, please come seek me out. Do not leave here doubting whether or not you're a child of God. Okay. And then to all you believers, all of believers that are here, I don't know what difficulty you're in. What's the old saying? If you're not in one, you're either coming out of one or going into one. Okay. Four truths. Four truths. It'll help you. The God of peace, the God of provision. God of a perfect plan. May God help us today. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for how you've encouraged my heart through this today. And I pray that encouragement has also been given to all here. Thank you for these two tremendous verses. The strength that they gave 2,000 years ago to these Hebrew believers and the strength that they're still giving to us 2,000 years later. And I pray these things...